1 Samuel chapter 20. Excited to get into the text this morning uh, because we're picking back up after a two-week break in 1 Samuel. Looking, We looked at uh, Psalm 11 and then Psalm 59, which of course were uh, kind of the background to 1 Samuel 18 and 19, that kind of little section. We now come into the continuing narrative of uh, David, who is currently on the run from King Saul. The last time that we saw David, he was uh, he had escaped with his life in chapter 19. He was surrounded in his house, and he sneaks out uh, of the window. Uh, his wife lets him down out the window, and off he goes. And he runs to uh, this city called Naoth, in which Samuel uh, lived there. And he was there, and, and Saul sent these messengers after him to come and capture David. But as the messengers approached Samuel, who was of course, uh, this uh, priest of the Lord there, they would uh, come into this moment where the Lord was overtaking, was overruling their lives, was overruling their bodies. And, and as if to say, you've come on the orders of Saul, who is the earthly king of Israel, but you are truly under the authority of the, uh, of the actual living God, the true king of Israel. And that the true king of Israel has a different set of orders, and that different set of orders is that you might prophesy. And so these different waves of messengers who come to capture David, they end up uh, being overtaken by the Holy Spirit and uh, are praising the Lord and, and, and such. And then we find that Saul, on his own, he says, you know, this keeps failing, I'm going to do it myself. And as he approaches, the Lord overrules him and says, you think you're in charge? You're not actually in charge, Saul. And uh, he... Uh, essentially also causes Saul to prophesy and really uh, so much so that he not only causes Saul to prophesy, but he overtakes his physical capabilities and now Saul's laying on the ground unable to control his own body and he's kind of stuck there, which is just a master stroke to really show someone that they're really not in control. Like you might think you're in control, but you're really not in control. It's all an illusion. And the Lord is revealing that to Saul. As much as you want to manipulate things, as much as you want to make your own decisions, as much as you want to go your own way, Saul, you're not really in control. And so it's best if, if Saul would have humbled himself to the Lord and said, you know what, God, you're in control. You're right. I'm done. I'm done trying to have my way. I'm done trying to go my own, my own way. I, I repent. I want to, to go wherever you want me to go. But, but Saul, he remains steadfast in his anger and his frustration and his hatred. He doesn't change, and he's constantly pursuing David here. He had an opportunity, but he doesn't take it. And, and so as we come to the text this morning, David has escaped. He's gone. Saul's there still stuck on the ground. And we come to the text this morning in chapter 20, and we read these things. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So we find now that David escapes. He's on his way out of the city, and he comes now to uh, the house of his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, for those of you who don't know, is the actual son of King Saul, the, uh, the, you know, um, the next in line to rule. He would be the next king of Israel. Uh, and so he is in a unique position, both as the next king and also the son of Saul. And Saul's trying to kill David. And so uh, David and Jonathan are best friends. And so David, he comes to Jonathan and, and he makes an honest inquiry like, what is the deal? What is going on? What have I done? What is my guilt? Why, why is your dad trying to kill me? Like, what sin is in my life that he thinks that I'm deserving of this? And Jonathan, he comes back, he's like, I don't really know what the heck you're talking about. Like, I don't know, I don't think my father's after you. He's like, he, you know, he's kind of like a little bit 
of a crazy person, but I don't, I don't think he's after you. And David, he, he leans into it with this vow. And what, he's, what it's saying there is he's, he's kind of pressing into this earlier covenant that uh, he has made with Jonathan. Like, look, I'm, I'm not one to misrepresent things to you, Jonathan. Listen to me. I am in a situation where I am in danger. He, he presses in and he says, your father knows that we're good friends. And so, of course, he's not going to tell you. Of course, he's not going to reveal to you his, his whole secret plan that he wants to accomplish, that he wants to kill me. But David, he gives us a little bit more insight into his own heart. Because what does he say there as he's communicating these things to Jonathan? He says, there is but a step between me and death. You see, David is discouraged. He's like, I've been running. I don't know what to do. Like, it just seems like no matter what I do, no matter where I go, I'm just constantly being chased. I can't escape. There's just one step. I'm just a a tiny bit ahead. He's coming to Jonathan, not, not just frustrated, but he's starting to just get beaten down. He's exhausted. He's tired. And in this exchange, we see the workings of a deep friendship that is rooted on God's faithfulness. We see this several times throughout the passage, but as we come uh, to this first exchange, we see that David uh, leans into this covenant that they have, and he says, look, trust me. But then Jonathan, he leans back into the covenant in verse 4. He says, Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Jonathan, he demonstrates this trust in David. He's like, look, we've got this relationship. We are tight. We both pursue the Lord. We both want to see uh, the Lord work in our lives. He trusts David, and he trusts, he trusts that David is following the Lord. He's not just like, hey, like you're kind of crazy, but like let's just see what happens here. He trusts David. He says, look, I want you to know that I'm for you. I'm not with my father. I'm not trying to kill you. Whatever you say, I will do for you. He can say that rightly. He can say that without reservation because their covenant is together is not just to be, I got your back no matter what. Their covenant is with themselves and the Lord. The Lord is a member of this relationship that they have. So when he says, I will do whatever you say, it's, it's this attitude that's saying, you're not going to make a request of me that is out of character with God's character. I only have to honor the things that you request because I know you're only going to request something that is godly. I know you're only going to request something that is, that is good and true. And so they have this deep relationship. They trust that the Lord is working. And so David said to Jonathan, verse 5, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm was determined by him. So here's the plan. David says, I know that there's a, a feast that's coming that he would have been expected to be at. Uh, these feasts happened, you know, uh, here with this new moon. Uh, you can get a little bit more details about uh, something similar in Numbers chapter 10. And we find here that this would have been an opportunity for the people of God to come together. And of course, the royal court would have come together and David would have been expected to be at this particular meal. But he says, look, I'm expected. And so here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to, you know, let's, let's, I'll be absent. But, I, you know, we're going to tell the king that if he asks that I have gone to uh, celebrate the feast, the festival, uh, at my house with my family. They prepare a similar thing. I'm going to go there. 
And so if uh, Saul says, yeah, no problem, then it's going to be good. But if he's angry, then we're going to know that he, he has something out for me. Right, so David's saying, like, I'm not going to fail to celebrate the feast. I'm going to choose a different location. I'm going to go to a different spot. I'm just not going to be here with the king. And the implications of this, perhaps for Saul, would be that Saul wouldn't have an opportunity to kill him. Uh, and so this will kind of reveal some motives a bit. But then on the other hand, uh, this gives perhaps that motive to be provoked a little bit further because if David is not there, a member of this royal court, it also uh, agitates Saul's identity a little bit as the king. Why would one of his royal figures not be present at his meal? Perhaps it would have been a bit of a spectacle to not see uh, everybody who's supposed to be there, there. Who knows? Uh, and so David comes with his plan. He, he shares this with Jonathan. Seems like fine. Now we come to verse 8 and, or excuse me, we got to move on. Uh, oh no, we come to verse 8. David continues, therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? So David comes and he brings this covenant reminder. He says, you've brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. He's like, we're in this together. We have committed to do right before the Lord together. We want to pursue the Lord together. We're not interested in these politics. We're not interested in, in getting our own way. We want to pursue the Lord together. And he says, if there is guilt in me, he presents himself now. He's like, we're in a covenant before the Lord. I've cleared my, myself before the Lord. I've submitted myself to the Lord and said, Lord, convict me if I'm in the wrong. Then he now says to Jonathan, if, you, if there's something that I'm not seeing, Jonathan, here's your opportunity. You can kill me yourself if there's an issue. You can inspect my life and see if there's a problem. David is willing to submit himself to others to look at his own life. And he does this so that they might, uh, so one, it might be, God might be honored and there might not be a hidden sin or a blind sin, but also that David might be seen to be innocent. And so, he makes this request. If you know of any guilt, you kill me yourself. But Jonathan comes back and he declares David's innocence. He's like, if, if I, like I, I would never do that. Far be it from you. If I knew that harm was determined by my father, like I'm, I would tell you. I would tell you that he's after you. He's aware of the situation. He sees David's life and he declares, there's nothing, there's nothing to be worried about. I don't, I'm not sure why he's after you. You're innocent. And so we now see Jonathan's response in verse 10. Uh, as David asks him, he's like, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? How am I going to know? If I'm not there, how am I going to know if he's angry, if he's upset, if he actually is out to get me? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Right? So he opens up and he's like, look, here we go. We've already have a covenant together. But now I'm saying, again, on this covenant, the Lord is a witness between you and I. I'm going to make this commitment to you. He says, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father <coughs> about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. 
May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as, his, as he loved his own soul. Now, we find here that here's the plan. Jonathan is telling him, I will tell you the result. I will be the one to deliver this. I will bring this about so that you might understand. And, he, and, he, and he's, he's banking on this relationship that they have, this covenant relationship. And he says here that, one, after you know, tomorrow or, or the third day, if, if I find out what's going on, I will get word to you. And, but, but what he's getting at first before the method of how he's going to get word to him, he's dealing with the implications of holding up his uh, faithful covenant. He says, first, if I get the info and it's good, I will tell you. If I don't get the info, or, or if I do get the info that it's bad, but I don't tell you, I want that same punishment that is given to you to be given to me. He's saying that in that same covenant that we walked between the animals before, I am going to be to be being willing to walk between that myself, to be torn in two. I am, am going to experience that same punishment that you would experience, David, if you were um, if you were killed. He's asking the Lord to apply this to himself. He's saying, I'm going to be faithful because I will not fail to tell you if I know. I will disclose it to you. But then as he comes into verse 14, we find some, some, something interesting here. Because Jonathan goes in to this conversation with David, realizing that like, not only is this going to be the end for David, it's probably going to be the end for himself. This is probably what he's facing it's not just that he can just kind of ask this casually. He knows that his own life is in danger, which is why he says in verse 14, if I am still alive, like I'm going to find out for you, but like if, I'm, if I make it out, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. What Jonathan realizes is that, of course, David is the anointed king. What Jonathan realizes is that the kingdom is never going to pass to him. The Lord has removed Saul as the king of Israel for the future. He's like, your, your kingdom is not going to continue. And so uh, the results of this, of course, is going to be that your line will uh, die off in terms of kingly rule. But he says here, as you come into your rule, don't kill me off. Don't, don't cut off my household in your great purge. Do not cut, verse 15, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. See, what's happening here is this. Jonathan recognizes what the Lord's doing. And he knows that it's the Lord who can stop him. The Lord's going to work. And he has already proclaimed that David will be the king. And so Jonathan doesn't resist. He's different than his father. He doesn't operate in fear. He doesn't operate in anger or hate. When he hears the word, he repents. And he's like, look, like David, he's going to be the king. And I'm going to let him be the king and I'm going to help him. And so I'm going to honor you. I want you to succeed. He's helping David escape. The very one who is supposed to be the next king is, has already given up his rights. He's already given David his armor. He's like given him his royal robes. He's given him, you know, his sword. He's like, look, like this, this belongs to the next king. Like this is, I'm not the next king. You're the next king. He's given those things to David because he knows that the, this is what the Lord is doing. And so here, he's making this proclamation that like, I know the Lord is going to do this. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. So he's like, let my descendants continue. Let them live. Typically, when a king would come in, you would kind of, you know, eliminate all your rivals. David is the direct rival 
to Jonathan, and Jonathan has deferred to David. He's like, look, I know who you are. I know what's happening here. More than that, he says that the Lord will oppose all who oppose David. The Lord will cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Now, this is a little bit ironic because David's chief enemy at the moment is Jonathan's dad. And so he's saying here to David and to the Lord, if you got to come after my dad, go for it. I'm surrendering all. I'm giving my own family to you. If you've got to come and overtake my own family because they are opposing your work, God, go for it. He wants to see the Lord glorified so much. He wants to see the Lord uh, exalted so much that he's willing to give up his own family. He's willing to give up a, 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 you know, his, his own rights, his own identity, so that the Lord might work. They have this deep commitment for one another. They make this great covenant. And now Jonathan's turn to come up with like the method of how this plan will go down. So we get the description in verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as a matter, uh, and as for the matter of you, uh, of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So Jonathan has this plan. Once I get word, here's how I'm going to let you know. You're David. Your job is to go uh, on the third day and go and be next to this great stone heap, uh, a huge stone that's there. And you're going to go and, and, and that's your location. The expectation is that you will be there on the third day. And I'm going to come and I'm going to start shooting arrows. I'm going to have my, my little servant uh, boy, and he's going to go out and collect them. But as I shoot, like, it's not about how he shoots. It's about how he responds now to, the, to this uh, servant boy who's going to go out and gather the arrows. He's going to shoot the arrows, pretend like he's trying to hit something. And no matter where they land, he's either going to say, like, to the servant boy, hey, like, they're a little bit closer here. Come closer. Like, you, you overran them, even if it's not correct. And then he is going to have David, that tells David, like, oh, like, you can come back. But if he says, like, oh, they're beyond you, they're like, they're, you got to keep going, you got to go farther, then that tells David, like, you got to get out of here. It's time for you to escape. But Jonathan shows, again, the same sort of understanding, the same perspective that he showed when he attacked the Philistine garrison. He's, he's weighing these things out in relationship to the Lord working, because what does he say? He's, he says, if the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. He's not saying, like, I've sent you away. It's the Lord who is sending you. It's the Lord who wants you to get out of here. I'm standing in, waiting to hear the word of the Lord. What is the response? And so he's asking the Lord to work here and either to confirm that David should stay or to confirm that David should go based on how the Lord now is going to work in Saul's heart, how the Lord is going to work in this uh, interaction. Jonathan isn't trying to manipulate it. He's just trying to say, here's, here's what we believe the Lord to be doing. But as, he, as they end this, the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. He reminds them that the, it's the Lord who binds them together, that they are covenanted together. They're, they're committed to one another in, in this uh, in loyalty in protecting one another, that they have this covenant that would be forever. 
So we find verse 24. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. So here we go. We've got the, the festival coming up. They sit down to eat. Uh, it seems like this is uh, for, for Saul, who's the king. He takes his, his seat at the meal. He's got his back to the wall, so probably he didn't get um, killed and assassinated. So he's, he's on guard here. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. So this kind of tells us a couple things. Like one, the king and the next in line for the king are like sitting opposite each other. So Saul's protected. But his son's not protected. Saul's protected because he does his back to the wall. And he has uh, his, his top general next to him. Like, doesn't it make a little bit more sense? Like, if your back's to the wall, like, you might be, like, a little bit safer. Like, maybe you should put the general next to, like, your kid because, like, he's going to be exposed. Or maybe you guys all sit on the wall side. Like, what's going on here? Saul only cares about himself. This was what we're getting at. He, he's not really thinking this through. But David's place was empty. Verse 26, Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. So Saul, said, Saul excuses, basically, he doesn't say anything about David not being at the feast. The first day of the feast is, uh, is considered a holy day. And so if you were uh, marked as unclean uh, that day, you know, through a number of, like, Old Testament laws that were laid out um, in the book of basically like Leviticus that spoke to ceremonial cleanliness. If you were not clean as a result of one of these many ways that you could become unclean, then you were not welcome to participate in the feast. And so the thought here is that, you know, oh, he must be unclean and so therefore he cannot participate. That's why he's not here. But again, this is a multi-day celebration, a multi-day feast. And so uh, Saul kind of has the right idea like, oh, this is why David's not here. This is why he's not here. It doesn't really tell us anything about his heart motive, but what he does, it does show us, is that he's aware at least of what the expectations are. He's not operating where he's like, well, like, why is David not? He knows that the possibility is that David, who is zealous for the Lord, doesn't want to show up uh, in an unholy manner at a holy feast. And so... He doesn't say anything. Verse 27, but on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. Right? So the second day of the month, David skipped, or the second, the second day, yeah, of the month was a non-holy day. So if you were ritually unclean, you could still come to the meal on that day. Uh, even if you were still working through this process of becoming ritually clean again, you could still attend and eat the food on that day. But David's place was empty. And so now the inquiry begins. Verse 27, And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes... Let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So, first, out the gate here, uh, Jonathan takes a little bit of, like, liberties with his story. He's going to spice it up a little bit right here because David never said anything about, like, yo, my brothers, like, are requesting me to go. Uh, maybe that's Jonathan trying to kind of save his own hide. He doesn't want to get killed. And he's like, look, like, David's brothers asked him, not just, like, David came to me and, said like, hey, right, because they're living in this uh, culture where you have to honor your family. And so this becomes a bigger, more important ask here if it's requested from the family rather than like, hey, my family's holding this, can I go? Um, and so he kind of takes some liberties with the story. But we find here that Saul doesn't really care, right? Because his attitude is revealed immediately. He begins saying this, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Now, from here on out, Saul's flipped a switch. He no longer refers to David 
by his name. Now he's the son of Jesse. Again, he's only interested in, in continually diminishing his name. Remember, Saul is in competition with David. So now he doesn't want to give any honor to David by mentioning David. He just is like, yo, the son Jesse. Jesse hasn't really done anything noteworthy. So, you know, that's not a competing name uh, here. And so he begins to work kind of subversively. You begin to see his motive uh, revealed. And he says, hey, like he's, uh, he hears the story. But as he hears this story, as it, as it comes to him, and he hears the reason why David's not there, Saul begins to get even more angry. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now, Saul, he, he's done playing. He's coming out hot. It's, it's over. So much so that he, in turn, now begins to attack his own family. Right? So David's the problem. David who is who he wants to kill. But now he turns to attack his own family. First off, he just comes straight out the gate, and he's like throwing his own wife under the bus. Right? You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Right? What the heck did she have to do with this? Like, how is she involved? Like, what's going on here? He just angry at everybody. She's not involved here. This is like nothing going on. But she gets thrown in there. He attacks her. Then he begins his attack on Jonathan. And he, he does this in a very systematic way, right? Super systematic because what he's trying to do here is to manipulate Jonathan. He's trying to manipulate Jonathan. And friends, this is what you need to be on guard for. This is what you need to be on guard for here. Because you will manipulate yourself. You will tell yourself these own lies. Satan will tell you these lies. The world will tell you these lies. So you need to know how the enemy attacks. You need to know. The scriptures tell us that we should not be ignorant of the devil's schemes. He's got traps. You've got to figure out how they work you got to figure out what those pitfalls are so you can guard yourself against them. That Ephesians tells us in, in Ephesians 5 that we should walk circumspectly. You know what that means? That your head's on a swivel. You're just always looking around like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Just making sure that there's no traps, no, you know, that you're not being hunted, that you're aware. So that way you can be someone who is able to escape quickly. Right? It's not just that you are have a feeling of peace because it seems that way. It's that you know that there is peace because you are aware of the presence of God. And he's highlighting all of these uh, uh, ways that the enemy seeks to deceive us. And so the first attack that Jonathan gets is one that is anchored to who he is. His own identity, right? He comes across with this first attack and he tries to shame him. Shame attack number one. You have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame. Here, the enemy is telling Jonathan, I can't believe you. I can't believe that you've chosen, you've chosen David over me. I can't believe that you've chosen David over all these other things. I can't believe that you think that this is a great idea. You're so stupid. You're the worst. Like, this is a completely foolish choice. He's telling him all these lies. And it's meant for Jonathan to hear these things. It's meant to cut Jonathan deep so that way he says, oh, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. He, he Saul is trying to, to, to demonstrate his anger so that way Jonathan starts to feel like, oh, I've got to please you now. I've got to make you so happy. I've got to like, I don't want you to be upset with me. And so I'll say, I'll say and do anything to make you happy. I mean, I'm sure as we're speaking these words, you've lived in, in a situation similar, right? It never feels good when someone's unhappy with you, when someone's angry at you, when someone's mad at you. 
but someone hates you, and it never feels good. But it doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's wrong that for you to have that feeling. Right? Even Jesus said that you are, are blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus said, if, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So if you're doing the right thing and you're experiencing hardships and difficulties, if you're experiencing suffering, welcome. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's supposed to be. Because people are not going to be happy when there is a standard of truth, when there is a standard of holiness, when there is, a, when there is righteousness to pursue. There's always a push to compromise and be like, why are you so like into that? Why are you so, why, like, what, like, can you just like back it off a little bit? It's like, it doesn't have to be so intense. And so you try to, to shame that person. Make it feel like, well, I don't know why you're go, going so crazy. Like, who do you think you are? The second attack that Saul brings is now shame combined with guilt. Right? He says, you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness, which if you kind of like trailer, it's a little bit confusing there, right? Right. What he's remarking on is your mom who bore you, like you were born and and you're the byproduct of your mother, and like you're shaming her, and you should feel guilty about it. Like you're shaming yourself, and you should feel guilty that you're bringing, you're bringing shame upon her. Because now I'm upset with her because you're doing dumb stuff. Like I don't know why she would have such a dumb kid who would not listen. Right? This is the, this is the second way that the enemy attacks. He tries to make you feel bad about yourself. He tries to get you, you, you know, upset about yourself, and then he tries to, to loop other people into it. But like, look, they even think you're dumb, and you're ruining their life also, and you're making it terrible for them. And it doesn't have to be as hard, but you're the problem. You're the catalyst. You're the burden now on these people, which is not true. He's pressuring Jonathan here. This is what he's trying to get at. If you really loved your mother, if you really loved your family, if you really cared about other people, then you wouldn't you would just you would you know take care of this so that way this was not an issue your actions are bring shame on on your mother also which makes no sense that he cares about shaming his uh, like Jonathan's mother cuz Saul was just shaming his own wife like so makes no sense but then on top of this he comes with the third attack which is rooted in uh, his attacking his identity, his future, his perhaps uh, expectation for the future, maybe calling him to be greedy, because then he says, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. He's saying like, look, right, right now I'm saying you're nobody, you're the worst, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're making life hard for everybody else, and you're never going to get out of this. You're never going to be established. You're never going to be anything beyond what you are right now, which is terrible. This is what is being said to Jonathan. As long as he's alive, your name's never going to get better. You're never going to be exalted. You're never going to grow into something that people respect. You're never going to grow into something worthwhile. People are never going to look at you and say, like, oh, yeah, I see, you know, somebody who I can admire over there. You're just, you're just a nobody. And, and as long as David's alive, this, this is never going to happen. You won't be recognized. Nobody will care who you are. But also, your kingdom won't be established. You're not going to be safe. If you're, if you're not in charge and there's a new kingdom, guess what? You're going to be on the chopping block. You're going to be killed. David's going to kill you. He's going to kill all your descendants. So you're not going to have a lineage either. Now, two things Saul doesn't realize. One, the kingship isn't his to give. It's already been taken away from him. So he doesn't have anything to pass on anyways. Like this is, it's like he's trying to give an empty bank account to somebody, right? Great. Nice gift to pass on. You got nothing in there. 
One, that. Number two, Jonathan and David are square. <laughs> they already have like a promise that David's like, yo, I'm going to take care of your family. Like, so Jonathan's not worried about this. <laughs> He's trying to come at him with lies that are already taken care of. It's like, like, why are you trying to attack me on things that aren't true? Maybe if they weren't in a covenant together, then there'd be some concern. Perhaps. But these attacks are brought in a systematic way. They're brought in order to, to cut Jonathan down, to discourage him to the point where he's just like, gives up. You're right. I should just, I should just work to trap David. I should just give in. I should just, just go that route and give you what you want. It'll be better for you. It'll be better for my descendants. It'll be better for my mother. It's easy, an easy opportunity for him to press into. But he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the bait. Because he has a covenant with David. He doesn't take the bait because, because Jonathan actually knows the Lord. He actually knows the Lord, so he's not worried about being protected by Saul. He's not worried about being protected by others. He actually has a relationship with the Lord. And so he's able to withstand these attacks by knowing who he is. Friends, that's how you make it through life. When these attacks come to you, right, they come those three ways that I was talking about. They come from other people. They're going to say things to you. They're going to try to shame you. They're going to try to guilt you. They're going to try to rock your identity and, and you know, try to make you greedy and to make you afraid and show you that you're unsafe in order to manipulate you to get what they want from you. Right? They're not there for your best interests. They're there to take. You're ruining something for them. And they're using you. They're using you. That's how the world works. The enemy is speaking these lies. In your heart of hearts, when you have your quiet time, when you're up late at night and you're exhausted, in the dead of night when you wake up, when you're laying there with the lights off, when you're opening up those envelopes and stacking up the bills and saying, like, I don't know how I'm going to escape this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know where I'm going to go with this. It's easy in those moments to just look around and look at the most practical thing to do. It's easy in those moments to look around and say, well, here's logically what I could do. We've already talked about this. Logic isn't always the most, you know, godly thing. It's Sometimes it makes the most sense. But it's not always what God is asking us to do. It's an upside-down kingdom that we're a part of. And here, we face these things on the daily. Externally. The enemy's bringing these lies to us. Telling us that we're worthless, that we're not worth anything, that we're good, not good, we're, that we shouldn't be, you know, we don't deserve to be in a, in a family with other believers. We don't deserve to have our, to be cared for. The enemy's trying to tell us this junk all the time. It's all straight up lies. But we're also telling ourselves these own lies too. The scriptures tell us that our heart condemns us. Like we self-condemn. But the scriptures also tell us that when our hearts condemn us, that God is greater than our hearts. He overcomes these things because we belong to him. And so the only way you escape is to deal rightly with the covenant God, is to be in relationship in a covenant not with David, but the son of David. The only way you escape is to have the truth drilled into your heart and mind. The truth establishing your soul. That when you 
or someone who these things could be true of, that you could be worthless, that you could be somebody who is guilty, that you could be somebody who is, you know, could totally agree with some of these positions that are being said. That you've acted sinfully, you've acted foolishly. You can agree with those things and realize that Jesus has died for your sins. Because you're, you're never going to be right. That he has paid for your sin. That in doing so, he has given a great exchange where you come to life in a record of perfection and he takes upon your sin, your brokenness, your frustrations, your fears, your anxieties, your worries. It's the only way that you survive. That's why we talk about having identity, 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 week after week after week. Because we're telling you that you need to get your mind right. Because our little sinful minds will keep telling us, like, I'm not, I'm not good. Right? But the scriptures tell us that you weren't good. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, Christ died to, re to reconcile you to God. So that now when you trust in Christ for salvation, then you are seen as good because it's his goodness. And so then you're adopted and you're accepted into his family. You're no longer a stranger, but you're a member of the household of faith. And so when people come in and tell you lies, when you tell yourself lies, when the enemy comes and tells you lies, hey, like, you know, you should be ashamed. It's like, well, I was ashamed, but Jesus paid for those sins at the cross. Congratulations. You should feel guilty. I was guilty, but Jesus came in and paid for that sin at the cross. Done. Next. Right? You should be somebody who's worried about safety and security in your identity. I was worried about that, but I decided that Jesus said, if you want to lose your life for my sake, you will find it. So I gave him my life, and now my life is hidden with Christ in God, and now I have eternal life forevermore that cannot be taken because I cannot be, uh, I cannot be snatched out of his hand. So, like, what are you going to do? Right? It diffuses these questions because you're not trying to save yourself. This has already been dealt with. And so when these lies come, you don't have to entertain them. You don't have to entertain these things. You just have to remember the truth of the gospel. Who you were, dead in your trespasses. Who you are, as someone who trusts in Christ for salvation, you're made new. Who he is, our redeemer, our savior, the one who reconciles us to God. And the outcome of that, that you will be with him forever and that nobody can touch you, right? So it's just like, enter into my, my timeline, doubts, fears, anxieties, worries, go ahead, bring it, let's go. But Jonathan, he knows what's up. He knows that he doesn't have to be worried about this. This is why he comes back in verse 32 and he says this, Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? He doesn't say, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, Dad. Like, uh, I shouldn't have let him go. Like, you know, you're right. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll go get him. I'll deliver him to you. He's like, what's your problem? Why, why should he be put to death? What has he done? He defends David. Saul's already taken an oath not to harm David, and he's already broken that oath, so we're already out the window there. But now he's trying to bring, uh, he's trying to bring charges against the innocent, which according to Exodus 23, which have been, would have been explicitly permitted, do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Right? The law says there, like, hey, don't try to bring judgment upon the innocent and don't be so worried about it yourself because, like, if somebody is wicked, I'm not going to let them go. I'm not going to let them go scot-free. Like, I'm going to handle it. The Lord's going to handle his own business. And all sin is ultimately against God, so, like, you don't need to be that stressed out about it. So Saul shouldn't be executing innocent people anyway. David had committed a crime, verse 33. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. So Saul attempts to murder his own son. He's like, yo, why are you like standing up for him? Why are you trying to defend David? He tries to kill him. But I love this. I love this picture. I love this picture. Because what Jonathan has done is he's chosen to not identify himself with the palace. He's not 
he, he has chosen to not identify himself with his father. He's chosen to not identify himself with these false charges and wickedness. He's chosen to identify himself with David. And Saul has said, you have chosen David. You've picked him to your own shame. What's the result of that? He receives the same treatment that David receives. Just as when we choose Christ, we still experience those same sufferings. We're not exempt from those things. Jonathan has chosen to identify himself with David, and so Saul treats him like that. If I threw a spear at David, I'm going to throw a spear at you now. I'm going to try to kill you. Verse 34, Then Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, and he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So he runs off. He's angry. It's a righteous anger. He's mourning. Now, here's the, here's the real deal here, though. Why in the world is Jonathan angry? Why does he have this fierce anger? Well, I think it would kind of be natural to be like, my dad's a huge jerk because he tried to kill me with a spear, like I was going to maybe go down that route. But that's not what the scriptures lead us to believe. That would have been frustrating. Try to get killed with the spear. I can understand why you would be upset. But he was angry. He was grieved because his father had disgraced David. He was grieved for David. Why is this man who is innocent, why is Saul coming against him? Why are they trying to kill him? It's shameful how Saul has treated David. This is why he's upset. He doesn't care about his own life. It's like, why, why, what's going on? It's embarrassing how he has treated David. Verse 35, in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. So we get the description of what happened here. According to plan, they go out, Jonathan shoots the arrow, arrow lands, pow, it's in the spot. The boy gets to the, the spot where the arrow is. He tells him, like, oh, isn't it, isn't it past you? Isn't it farther? Like, and then Jonathan, he has some urgency about this because he wants David to understand, like, whoa, like this got like way out of hand here. And so he doesn't just say, like, yeah, go for it, like, you know, it's it's past you, which would have told David leave. He he presses into it a little bit further and, and he tells him, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. He's like, whoa, this is like, wh this like escalated way quickly. Like he's really out to get you. Not just like, eh, it was kind of bad. He's trying to communicate like this bad news completely. But as he, as the boy comes back, he collects the arrows. He, he uh, comes back to Jonathan. Jonathan gives him his weapons, sends them away. Goes into the city. Now, it's interesting that this is recorded Right? Why is this recorded? It makes a little bit like, okay, sure, like he sent the boy away, got, some, got his arrows, left. But I think what, what we're intended to see here is that not only was Jonathan faithful to his word to tell David, yeah, you got to get out of here, not only was he faithful there, he's demonstrating still. I'm disarming myself of all my weapons. Even after I know the outcome, I haven't changed. I don't have my arrow. I know you're out there. You could have easily come out and hunted him. If he had a change of heart, he could have had a trap there set. But he got rid of his arrows. He got rid of his bow. He sent the boy away. He's disarming himself before David, saying, I'm coming again as your friend, as your servant, Verse 41, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times 
And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And so we find that uh, as they come out, David, he doesn't really say anything. I think they're both overcome with this grief. He instead, in this relationship, uh, this covenant relationship, demonstrates uh, this humility. He acts as a servant here, bowing before his friend. Three times, we're told, uh, which is the most that we find this ever recorded in the Bible, that, you know, three bows is like the most uh, that's, that's ever happens in one, one instance. Uh, and then they have this, uh, you know, standard customary greeting uh, as they kiss one another, they weep with one another, and David weeping the most. It's an opportunity for them to grieve because they know that this is basically going to be the last time that they see each other. Like, it's on. David's going to be on the run now from here on forth. And Jonathan, who knows what's going to happen to him. But they have this relationship that goes beyond. Remember, the Lord will be between them forever. Uh, And they say as much in verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and went into the city. And so David and Jonathan are now going to be separated. They're going to go off in their own different ways. Uh, Jonathan was going to have to return and face whatever comes here as being a member of, of the palace. But David will be on the run, although they will be uh, inseparably joined. As they are in this covenant, they swear this oath in the Lord's name, again reaffirming this. And then we also have the continuing remark here that this will be between David's offspring and Jonathan's offspring forever. Now, as you move into uh, the later chapters uh, of uh, David's narrative, you read how this plays out a little bit more explicitly. But you find that there is a generational relationship that continues, that David's descendants continue to honor and to protect Jonathan's descendants. It's a promise that remains and something that continues uh, as the narrative moves on. It's something that happens as a result of their deep passion to know the Lord. They're not brought together by anything other than their desire to know the Lord more deeply. This is what brings them into this friendship. This is what brings them into this covenant relationship. And this is how both of them survive. One is a member of the household of the king who is out to kill David and one who is given this title, given this new life that has not yet been inaugurated. It's a promise that's made to David but yet has not been delivered on yet. He's not yet the king. He's not yet the king. But he will be the king. He will be the king. And Jonathan knows, Jonathan knows that this will come to pass because the Lord is faithful. The Lord will keep his word. The Lord is more faithful, way more faithful than either of them could ever be. And this is how we, we, make this, uh, we make this transition as believers. This is how we navigate life. We bank on God's faithfulness, not on our faithfulness, not on who we are, not on what our expectations are, on his faithfulness. Because I will tell you, and I think we can all agree, that we will let each other down. Not only will we let each other down in ways that are, you know, expected, ways that are unexpected. We will let each other down in ways that are annoying. We will let each other down in ways that are outright sinful and offensive. We will do dumb stuff. It just will happen. But our identities have to be rooted in God, in his work, in in what he has said about us. Right? 
We have to have confidence in that future promise. The scriptures tell us that this is the destination for all believers. Right now, it can be a little bit tough. It can be hard to walk as a Christian. It can be hard to walk as a Christian. We can be people who are seeing that we will be glorified. We will be there. And we look to those days and where, where we read in the scriptures that there will be no pain and no tears. And like, I'm excited about that because like, you know, when I was in my teens, I, I used to be like, I don't know why old people complain about being like sore and tired so much. Like it just didn't make any sense to me. And then, you know, you get a little bit older and all of a sudden you're like, what in the world is going on? Like I didn't do anything. Like I just picked up like, a, you know, a gallon of milk and all of a sudden like all out of whack. What's happening? Right. You start to you start to feel these things intensify. You start to uh, feel these things go downhill a little bit. And you look to that day where where. You know, there's small things like that, but of course, you know, in the world that we live in, it's quite tumultuous. We look to that day where we will be deeply satisfied, but how do we know we're going to make it? How do we know that we're going to get there? Well, the scriptures tell us that we bank all of this on the resurrection. It's banked on the resurrection because this is the paid in full receipt. This, that receipt there that you get that says God has accepted the payment for our sin. This is, this is what is delivered. We are justified by faith. Romans tells us the resurrection is for our justification. Sometimes uh, it's a little bit, a little bit of like a, a low-level definition, but maybe helpful for you. That idea of the word justified is often communicated uh, to people to mean just as if, right? That kind of is like this uh, little mnemonic device to help you understand what it means. Just as if you never sinned, right? Which that's not really what it means, but it gives you the idea, gives you the idea. Just as if you never sinned, that you are justified, right? It's more accurately saying that you have sinned, but your payment has been made. Your payment has been made. And that's important for us to realize because that's what we need to combat these things. We need to combat those lies from the enemy. We need to combat the lies that we tell ourselves. Because I will tell you, you will believe them. You will believe the lies that you tell yourself. You will believe the lies that other people tell you. You will give them credibility that they do not deserve. You only need to have one belief, one credible person. It's the Lord. He knows the truest things about you. And he's the only one who can say what is right and what is not right. He's the only faithful one. We can count on him because of the resurrection. It's the empty tomb that tells us he's alive, that our, our sins are paid for, right? In the same way here that, that Jonathan and David agree that on the third day that David's going to go out to this stone heap and he expected him to be there. When Jesus went into the grave, when on the third day they went to the grave to find him and he wasn't there, that wasn't him being unfaithful. It was him being faithful. The fact that he wasn't there speaks to his total faithfulness. That he paid completely for our sin. Not that he shirked his responsibilities. See, when they went to the grave on the third day, their expectations were wrong. They were unfaithful in their expectations. They didn't believe the truth of the gospel. He told them, I'm going to go and suffer, but I'll rise three days later. But they didn't believe it. But if they would have believed, then they would have come with proper expectations. He was more faithful than they were. And it's because he has risen that we have the ability to navigate life. And we find an everlasting lineage in being brought into his family. That we're never to be put out 
but we can dine in safety and security at the king's table. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, thankful for your work, thankful that you have welcomed us into your family. And so, Lord, we come now and we respond to who you are in worship. We respond to your faithfulness, your kindness. And so, Lord, would you be glorified in our lives. Help us to pursue you, to be more satisfied in who you are. We want to be with you. We want to enjoy you. We know that we belong to you. You've redeemed us. You've purchased us with your own blood. You have, uh, you have justified us so that we are seen as clean and pure because of the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And so, Lord, be glorified in your people. We love you. Amen.